Well, I am so glad to have our new banner hanging here, which is a combination, if you'll notice, between the old sanctuary, remember that colorful window that was in the back of the old sanctuary there? It's still there. You can walk around the other side to see it. And this window here superimposed the old on the new or the new on the old with the 125 years mentioned, which we celebrate next June, the third week of June will be our 125th anniversary and uh, hanging from that uh, combination of the new and the old is the mission statement, which is on the front of this little brochure that we are here spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And I want to thank Mark Salzman and his team for working so hard on this banner and what it will mean to us as we visually allow all the different things that it says over these next months to get into our heart. Now, I would really like to have everybody in the room have one of these within looking distance. So look underneath to see if there's one under the pew if you don't have one. If you brought one with you, good. Ushers, why don't you come on to the front and... Uh, They'll walk toward the back, and if you can't reach one, if you don't have one, or if your visitor and would like to have one to keep, just flag an usher down as they go back, because I'm going to be referring to this as we go through the message this morning. Thank you so much for your help, ushers. Those of you who keep coming back, regular attenders and members, and uh, bring yours with you, please, so that we won't run out of these over the several months that we're going to be using them. But I'm real happy to have visitors get them and take them if they look like they would be helpful for you in your own thinking and your own church. Bethlehem Baptist Church, according to this statement on the front, exists to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. Now, I want to tell you personally what this is meaning to me right now in these particular days, and uh, hopefully it will make a difference in your particular days. I spoke over at Northwestern College Chapel on Wednesday, and uh, as I was preparing to go over there, I was so gripped by the thought that I'm a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, and whenever I do something besides preach in this pulpit, I go as an emissary of this church. I represent this church. I'm not a free agent on the evangelical scene. I'm a pastor with roots right here in this church for the last 15 years. And therefore, where I go, in a sense, you go. And what I say, in a sense, you are behind, I hope. And I want prayer behind what I do, and I want endorsement. And therefore, I stood up in the chapel, and the first words that came out of my mouth were, my mission this morning in this chapel is to spread passion for the supremacy of God in all things for all peoples. And then I went on from there, and that's the way I wound up my little 20-minute talk. This Wednesday night, the reason I'm going to be here is I'm going to be down at Wheaton College debating Ruth Tucker on what the Bible says about the family. Please pray for me. Debates are tense, especially on volatile issues like how should husbands and wives relate to each other in the family when you got a feminist on one side and a John Piper type on the other side? So please pray for me. But when I stand up, the first words out of my mouth, or second, I'm not just sure how, but within the first couple of sentences, I'm going to say, my mission tonight in Pierce Chapel is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, including the family and the dynamics of husband and wife relationships 
for the joy of all peoples, including little children that grow up in those homes. And I'm going to say that the reason I care enough about driving all the way down here on Wednesday and driving all the way back on Thursday just to take an hour and a half with you people is because when God's glory is at stake in the family, it makes a big difference in everything. And God's glory is at stake in the family in how husbands and wives conceive of their relationship according to Ephesians 5. And whether husbands know how to love like Jesus and lead like Jesus and wives know how to love like the church and endorse that leadership like the church endorses Christ. Whether that works or not makes a difference for the joy not only of children, but the nations. So I'm going to do that at Wheaton. And when I get back Friday night, I'm going to Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center and speak at a pro-life banquet. And the first words out of my mouth are going to be, my mission tonight on the issue of life and unborn children is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in life, for the joy of all people, including unborn children and their wounded mothers. It really is making a difference in my life. It's giving unity and focus and energy to what I'm about. You know, there is something gloriously liberating and helpful to have a life mission state. Now, I want you to have one. And you can take that. There are others. We've said many times now, a church doesn't have to say it that way or do it just like that. But to put God at the center of your life and to find a way to say how he's there and why you get up in the morning and why you're on planet Earth, that is a wonderfully empowering thing. You need that. You need that in your life. So that when you go to bed at night, you can assess how it went through the day and repent and ask for forgiveness and feel clean when you lie down. And when you get up in the morning, you know why you're going to get out of bed. There's a sense to it all. And so I'm so happy to have this page one in my life. I'm so happy that God did this for about eight months. He did this. He made this happen. He brought it into being on the master planning team and in the life and thought of the elders. Then we ask the question, how do you do that? Where do you get the energy, the motivation, the spiritual wherewithal to, to do this, to make the supremacy of God the center of your life? And that's page two. So let's open our book that's now to page two. This is not the Bible, by the way. This is not my uh, basis for believing these things. This is an articulation of what we believe the Bible says, and we'll get to the Bible before we're done this morning. But here we are with our spiritual dynamic that drives, and we could say sustains, empowers, energizes, enables our mission. Let's read it together. Read it out loud with me, starting with the words, we join. We join God the Father in magnifying the supremacy of His glory through our Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, by treasuring all that God is, loving all whom he loves, praying for all his purposes, meditating on all his word, sustained by all his grace. Now, the first couple of lines there are simply restatement of page one. We join God the Father in magnifying the supremacy of his glory. But then come 
the hows of it all. And the first one was through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next one was by the power or in the power of the Holy Spirit. And two weeks ago, we said that what that means is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternal, one with the Father, came into the world and died in order that the wrath of God might be taken away from us and that the curse of God that was upon us might be removed and that the uh, justice of God might be satisfied and the sins might be forgiven and the guilt might be taken away and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus might be clothed around us. And then in that pardon, God in his love and acceptance of us would pour out his spirit into our life to help us do page one. In other words, to sum it up in little simple phrases, we could not get to first base in living for the supremacy of God's glory apart from the pardon of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. That's those first two phrases here. Through our Lord Jesus Christ means through all that he accomplished for us when he died for us on the cross. My only hope of eternal life, my only hope of knowing God, my only hope of fellowship with him, my only hope of sins forgiven and guilt removed and and wrath averted from me. My only hope is Christ died for my sins. That's all. That's my only hope. If that's true then God smiles upon me in him. And then the spirit comes and the enabling power comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. We move ahead. Now, the next question last week was, how do you link up with the pardon of Jesus and the power of the spirit? That is, what what's the connection? How do you become the kind of person who's, It counts for that's mine. That pardon is mine. That power is mine instead of just kind of being off there and not having the pardon and not having the power. How do you connect? And we answered biblically by saying through faith, not works. That is Ephesians 2, 8 in the Bible. By grace, are you saved through faith? The gift of God, it is not your own works as though you could ever boast in it. So faith is the connection with this pardon of Jesus. And then we said, well, what about the power of the spirit? We said, same thing through faith. Why? Galatians chapter three, verse five, where it says he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you. Does he do so by works of the law? Answer, no. Or by hearing with faith. Answer, yes. So the pardon comes by faith and the power comes by faith. And we ask, well, why did you use the word treasuring then? Why didn't you say by faith right there? And we said the reason is because the word faith, belief, trust is so misused and misunderstood in our culture that if you say to somebody, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, almost everybody says, I do. And so we said, well, what does it really mean? What does faith mean? And the Bible says it means with your head assenting to truth about Christ and with your heart 
embracing the reality behind that truth, cherishing it and treasuring it so that it satisfies your heart. That's faith. And if that's missing, this head thing isn't faith. That's what we're trying to get across when we say by treasuring all that God is. Saving faith is more than a head knowledge about what God did for us. It is a heart embracing, cherishing, or I like the word treasuring. It's a good biblical word. The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure. Everybody who is in the kingdom found a treasure and went and said, I'm done with everything else in my life. How can I have that treasure? And bought it with faith. Treasuring it. Treasured it. And then we ask the question, how does that connect with love? Loving all whom he loves. And the answer was Galatians 5, 6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Faith works through love. How does that work? I wrote a whole book to try to explain how it works called Living by Faith in Future Grace. And just about all the other books are about the same thing. The way it works is this. If faith is a treasuring or a being satisfied with all that God is and promises to be for us in Jesus, it satisfies the heart. And when it does, it severs the powerful root of the promises of sin. Sin has power only in one way. It makes promises of happiness. It's the only power sin has in your life. It makes promises. The only way to nullify the promises of sin is with the power of a superior satisfaction. It's the only way. There are other ways you try, mainly with gut-wrenching, teeth-gritting duty called legalism. The only way to be free in Christ from sin is to be mastered by the expulsive power of a new affection, as Thomas Chalmers calls it. Or by a superior satisfaction. And that's what faith is. Faith is an embracing of a treasure and a drinking at a fountain and an eating at a heavenly bread. Such that the advertisements of sin look stupid after you've tasted God. Once you've tasted God... And Satan comes and says, ah, you can have a one night stand, man. And it's so groovy and she's cool. And your wife is a drag. And come on, man. That will sound like the most ridiculous, stupid, insane, suicidal word. Because faith has embraced God, who is an infinitely wise counselor, when he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Or fornication. And you will say, God knows what he means. He knows my life. He loves me. He has a beautiful plan for me. If he says it, it's got to be true. And that's a lie. That's the way you fight the fight of faith. That's the way love is produced. Because all the obstacles to love are obstacles to other-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the opposite of love. Other-centeredness is what love is about. How do you become other-centered when your your life is just churning with needs and churning with desires and churning with longings for yourself? 
And the answer is, faith reaches out, embraces all that God promises to be, drinks at his satisfying fountain, and suddenly you're a free person for others. The fountain starts to overflow and greed goes and fear goes and covetousness goes and and uh, despondency goes and lust goes because Christ becomes your all. All. Christ is all. And when Christ is all, you become a person for others. So love flows from this treasuring. You got it? Let's sum it up so far. We, we've got uh, three steps so far. Our church exists to magnify the glory or the supremacy of God. The way you do that is by visible faith called love. Let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds of love and give glory to your Father in heaven. And faith, the being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, is what liberates you for love. Now, today's question. Where do you get that kind of faith? Where does that come from? How does that happen here? Where does faith come from? If faith can do that, if faith can make me a loving person that releases me to be a person for others that gives glory to God and shows me why I'm on planet Earth and how I link up with His great eternal purposes, I want that. And I want it to grow in my life. Where does it come from? Well, the next two lines here on this little non-authoritative sheet is praying for all his purposes and meditating on all his word. Now, in nine weeks, I'm going to preach two messages on praying during prayer week. So I'm not going to say but a half a minute's worth about prayer this morning. And I'm going to spend the rest of our time on the Word and meditating on the Word. But here's what I want to say about prayer as I pass over it and postpone it for nine weeks. Though prayer is always here. In uh, Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist lifts his voice to the Lord like this. He says, uh, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your Law. He's praying. He's praying. And what he's asking God to do is open his eyes. Not just these eyes here. He, he can do that. He can see these black Hebrew marks on the scroll. But these eyes right here that discern glory and beauty and wonder, wonderful things, they open and shut kind of we know not how. And so he's praying, God, do it. I don't want to just read the Bible and see nothing. I want to see wonder. If you're here, if you're real, open these eyes. And so all I want to say about prayer this morning is pray that when you read your Bible. When you get up in the morning and you know from experience you've put an elbow on this side of the Bible, an elbow on that side of the Bible, and you've looked at this page and nothing. And it's blank and it's empty. You know that. We've all had that experience. Therefore, we must pray. We must cry out to God like I do every morning. God, speak. Stand forth. Stand forth. 
open these eyes, the eyes of the heart, that I might see, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, the the hope to which I've been called, the inheritance that you've got in saints, the power that's at work in those who believe. Make me a seer in here as well as here. You've got to pray if you want God to open the Bible for you. Now, here's what I want to talk about in the rest of our minutes this morning. I want to talk about the, the word, meditating on all God's word. And here's the question that I want to uh, ask. Where does faith come from? Where does this treasuring all that God is come from? Romans 10, verses 14 to 17. Here's what it says. How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed or treasured? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And here's verse 17. This is the key verse. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So here's my answer to the first question. Where does treasuring all that God is come from? It comes from meditating on all his word or hearing the word of Christ or hearing the word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, that's so crucial. Tonight, I'm going to pick it up and talk about practical things about meditating on the word of the Lord. But here's the one question I want to ask this morning about this. I take his word here. To mean the Bible. Sixty-six books between these black covers called the Bible. Been around for a long time. It's survived a lot of assaults. And the question that we've got to ask this morning, and this is no academic question, not for one person in this room, this is life and death now. Is this the word of God? Is this the word of God? Because that's what I mean it to be when I say meditating on all his word. I mean this book right here. Meditating on the meaning of the sentences in this book. Now the question we've got to answer, and this is the only thing I want to do in the rest of our time, basically, is try to grapple with this question for you and with you. Is this God's word? How would you decide? I, I debated as I was working on this yesterday, should I tackle that? I mean, that's a, that's a topic for an apologetics class in a seminary when you've got eight or ten or twelve weeks and a lot of books to read and some heavyweight minds to call in to help. But then I thought, look, sure, that, that's a place for it. But we don't go to seminary anymore. And we've got to decide... What's true? I mean, planet Earth is a raft floating in a sea of eternity. And everybody's fallen off into eternity. You're going to fall off. Some of you will fall off before this year's over, probably. Nine weeks and some will die. All of us have fallen off this raft into eternity. And there are a few books lying around on the raft. You've got to decide. 
Or either you just close your eyes. Say, hmm. You can live that way. A lot of people do. We don't have the luxury. I, as a pastor, I say, well, I'd rather let somebody in seminary answer that question. I'd rather point them to a nice, big, thick book on the inerrancy and authority of the Bible and, and let, and let a scholar do this thing. But authenticity is at stake. You have to decide today whether you're going to believe this or not. You got to. Either you will walk out of here saying, I can't or I don't know or I'm agnostic or I don't believe it or I'm a rebel or maybe or... But you're going to decide something. You've got to decide. How are you going to do it? And that's what I want to try to answer. It's not easy. But here's my attempt. And this is really just an attempt for me to be a real Christian. I do not want to be a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. That, that smacks of... Um, a terrible dishonor to the Lord to say, I don't really have any reason to believe in you except my mom did. That's a dishonor to the Lord. So here's here's my answer. I'm going to put in a little, little crisp core sentence and then I'll try to unpack it a little bit. So if it sounds too simple, hang on. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. We all come to our conviction about the Bible being the word of God on different paths. And so I don't presume to say there's just one way. You know, if you're trying to decide that somebody is trustworthy, well, you you might know that person in a way that I've never known that person and conclude that, that she's trustworthy. And I might know that person in a way that's totally different for you and conclude that she's trustworthy. And we didn't have the same experience of all, and both of them would be valid. So I don't mean to say... Every path to conviction is the same. But here is something I believe is at the center of all valid conviction about the Bible being the word of God. It's this. Jesus Christ, as he is presented in the New Testament, has won our trust. And we have embraced his view of the Bible as we have his view of everything else he talks about. Jesus Christ, as he is presented in the New Testament, as he is lifted up and proclaimed and portrayed in the New Testament, stands forth and wins from us our trust. And then we embrace what he teaches about the Bible, as we do about money. Sex and everything else he talks about. In other words, let me say it a different way. Jesus is such a powerful historical person that nothing has been able to conceal him in his true glory. He has broken through every human limitation on word and historical tradition. He's broken through and he has revealed himself as authentic, so loving, so penetratingly wise, so uniquely authoritative, so devoted to God, so powerful in words and deeds that none is like him and he has won our trust and therefore we embrace what he teaches about the Bible. I'll talk some about that tonight. What does he teach about the Bible? From time to time, 
having been won over by Jesus as he is portrayed in the Bible. And mark it, you've got to live that way. You have no choice. If you are to make any decisions about anybody outside your experience, it must be through a testimony. And you've got to decide whether what comes through that testimony self-evidences itself as authentic or not. And, and yet you ask questions from time to time. I ask questions like these. Is the portrait of Jesus that we have in the New Testament the result of fanatical delusion? Delusion. These, these witnesses are deluded. Did some religious zealots hallucinate and create all the teachings and deeds and deity and the atoning death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Is the magnificent Christ that I see standing forth from the witnesses of the New Testament froth, froth of the minds of hallucinating people? I remember driving down 35W up there near, near, uh, in New Brighton and there's a big sign that says free foam with every beer. I thought to myself, great! <laughs> Foam! Thank you! That's the way a lot of, lot of people. I mean, is this just the foam? You got these hallucinating minds and this magnificent portrait of a glorious, trustworthy Christ, more wise, more loving, more humble, more self-denying, more God-exalting, more powerful than anybody else, is just the froth, it's the foam on the beer of hallucination. you got to decide. you got to decide. Is that a good solution? Or I ask questions like, is the portrait of Christ that we have in the Bible an intentional deception, not hallucination, but an intentional fraud foisted on the world. A kind of Passover plot that we were all shaken and read about about 25 years ago. That was the big thing, the Passover plot. For which then these fraudulent witnesses gave their lives. you got to decide. Does that make sense? Does that work? Is that a good way of handling this magnificent portrait of this self-evidencing, glorious being called Jesus? Is that, the, is that it? Fraud for which they died and were whipped to pieces over and over again. Like the Apostle Paul, five times 39 lashes for a fraud. Do you believe that? Or a third question I ask is, maybe the way it happened was that there was just a little tiny kernel of truth. A little tiny kernel. Jesus really was there and he really did a few little things and a little bit of teaching. A little kernel of truth. But over the decades, it has become so overgrown with exaggerated tales that no one could ever get back to the real Jesus of history. Which would mean that the magnificence of this person is really the magnificence of the imagination of the community of Christ, which had no better historical foundation than a person like you and me. You've got to decide. What, 
What do you, how do you account for this man that stands forth from the New Testament? Who beckons you into a relationship and reveals a kind of glory and a kind of authenticity and a kind of love and a kind of insight and a kind of authority and power in deed and word that is unparalleled. Nobody ever spoke like this man. You gotta decide. What are you gonna do with him? How are you gonna account for that? And my answer as I go over those questions and I've been all through the upper echelons of powerful German higher criticism on this. Wrestling for years over there in Munich, Germany, in my little pantry of whether I could stand. And frankly, this doesn't cut any weight in the guild whatsoever, but I would die for it. I am not impressed with the reconstructions of the historical Jesus by the Jesus Project or any other project. And I am not impressed by those who write them. I'm impressed by Paul. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Jude, and the writer to the Hebrews. I am impressed by these men. I do not see them as lunatics or fraudulent, but I do see some lunatics and fraudulent people in the guild of New Testament scholarship. Not all. You can't say that in too many places. But when you've been through it and you've read about 30 years of it and every generation produces its Jesus to fit its philosophical presuppositions, twisting and turning the Bible, denying this one this generation and affirming this one the next generation, you start to get to the place when you're 50 years old, which I will be in January, and you say, I'm not very impressed anymore with this stuff. You get a few strokes at a hotel in San Francisco for three days when you meet and you read high-powered, weird papers to each other. I'm not impressed, and I've been through it all. I'm impressed with the man, Christ Jesus, and his witnesses who laid down their lives to leave a testimony to us. And the glory and the self-authenticating beauty and trustworthiness that cries out from the Gospels with voices 10,000 times more compelling than anything I've ever read in any, any scholarly book. And I commend them to you. I commend them to you in the early morning hours, in the late night hours, when you're not playing games anymore and you know you're going to die, you're going to fall off this wrath and you've got to make a decision about what's real in the universe. And there's no game playing anymore. What am I going to believe? What am I going to hang my whole soul on? How will I meet the judge? So my answer is, these books don't have the flavor of hallucination or fraud or indifference to the truth. The portrait of Jesus that they present comes through with such authenticity and power that it illumines all of reality. This I could dwell for a half an hour probably on this point alone. I just got to pass over it. That, that once you do say yes to Jesus... He is worth believing. He commends himself. There's an authenticity here I haven't seen anywhere else in the world. Once you do that, 
a light streams into your soul that illumines, illumines pulpits and clothes and money and sex and family and politics and everything. Light just starts to stream everywhere as you start to interpret reality in relationship to God revealed in Christ in the word of God. And all of that becomes secondary buttressing to this commitment you made to the Christ that stands forth from the Bible and his view of his and his father's word. There's one more text I want you to look at with me before we go. And it's in Second Thessalonians. And uh, that's a hard book to find if you're not a real Bible dog. And so I'm going to tell you what page it's on. I think it's 1408 here. Um, if you, if you use the Pew Bible, that is. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It's page 1408 in the Pew Bible. Little book that Paul wrote after he had been in a church for about, I mean, he founded a church, started a church uh, in Thessalonica in Greece. And he was there about three weeks. And then he left and he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter. And in this letter, he talks about the event, the gigantic event That happens in the human soul when it's confronted with the word of God and it has to decide, is it God's word or man's word? That's what you've got to decide right now as I'm preaching. You've got to decide it every time you open the Bible. God's word or man's word? Now, Paul preached and people believed. They said, God's word. And here's the explanation that he gave for that in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians uh, two. Oops. Second Thessalonians. Thank you. Second Thessalonians two. We also constantly thank God that when you received from us the, the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, here's what I want you to see, just very simply. He says he constantly thanks God. Why? Why does he thank God? They did the believing, right? Why is he thanking God for this amazing transaction that when Paul, a human being, a mere mortal, opened his mouth and portrayed Christ, brought in the Old Testament, talked about the cross, talked about faith, talked about the creator and presented a beautiful portrait of reality with Christ at the center. Why did they say yes? That's God. That's Christ, the Son of God. That's the Word of God. Why'd they do that? And Paul says, I thank God they did it. God did it. God did it. God opened their eyes. When I was praying before the first service with the, with the staff downstairs, I just was, this, this wave of gratitude came over me that I believe. Do you ever thank God that you believe that when you pick up the Bible, you don't hate it? That you came into this room? You came. You came. Why are you here? God, that's why. That when you pick up the Bible, you don't spit on it. You don't feel hostile to it. That you love it. Even sometimes when it perplexes you and you'll get it all. 
There's enough of it that you've gotten that the glory of Christ stands forth from it. That's God's work in your life. That's why Paul says, I thank God constantly that when you heard the word of my message, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. And so we very simply must need, we need to say the bottom line answer to why we believe that the Bible is the word of God is God. God has come by the power of the Holy Spirit and done a work in here. The human heart was created by God to receive and fit together with divine truth and reality. We have taken the template designed for the word of God God, and we have stuffed into it the world. All kinds of power moves and money moves and sex moves and leisure moves and, and some less innocent stuff. And we crammed it in there until it, could, it feels a little bit smooth, like, wow, yeah, I could live this way. And then cancer comes or the job is lost and little chunks get knocked out here and you get lonely at night and God is graciously moving on you. And the word, you go to the Bible, you know, there couldn't be anything to this. And suddenly, that's God. My God, it fits. It's real. Christ is real. Every need I have. He will meet the design of his atonement, the character of his person, his origin in the father, his destiny in eternal life, his love of little children, his receiving of women, his touching of lepers, his wise rebukes of those who were cynical. This guy is real and he fits. Click. And the next thing is, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That you opened my heart, dug enough of my pleasures and comforts out, and it fit. So, the last thing is simply to ask, what what are we going to do with this book? I want to talk about the practicalities of meditation tonight. But corporately, look at page five as we close in this little orange book, or mustard book, or whatever color it is. Page five, first column, values relating to Bethlehem's spiritual atmosphere. I just want to highlight... Highlight this so that you get it. The master planning team, when we said, well, if the Bible is the word of God, what are we going to do with it? Look at uh, number three in that first column, values relating to Bethlehem's spiritual atmosphere. We value personal Bible reading, reflection, memorization among all our people. Look at number five. We value the indispensable role of teachers and parents to impart biblical truth. Look at number six. Keeping the, we value keeping the main things the main things, maintaining biblical proportion. Number seven, we value the study of sound biblical theology. Number eight, we value being a people who are humble and teachable before the word of God. Number nine, we value all services, committees, small groups, relationships permeated by the word of God. Number 11, we value biblical self-denial. Number 19, we value efficient administrative structures shaped by the word and on it goes. It's clear that we intend to be a Bible-saturated church. And my closing appeal to you is to be a Bible-saturated person. Be like Spurgeon who said, It is blessed 
to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is biblene and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. Oh, how I long for us to be a people of one great book. I have never met a weak person who is a person of the word. Never. All the weak people I know neglect the Bible. All of them. Everybody who lives in the word is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit. And in everything they do, they prosper. I plead with you. Renounce the power of television. Renounce the power of the newspaper and magazines. Renounce the power of hobbies and leisure. And give yourself to the fountain that strengthens you. Don't you want to be a tree? And not a little flimsy bloop, bloop, bloop. So many come into my office and say, I don't know what to do. And I say, tell me about your life in the Word. And it isn't. Oh God, you are our great self-revealing God. You have not left us without a witness. I thank you. I thank you with all my heart for the Bible. I thank you for Jesus who stands forth from it in such a undeniable, self-authenticating, powerful and glorious way that he wins our trust and we have no way to be authentic and have integrity if we do not say yes to this Jesus. And then we learn from him all that he says about the word of God. And so my prayer, Father, is that we would not stand in the counsel of the ungodly nor sit in the seat of scoffers nor walk in the path of the wicked, but that we would delight in the law of God and meditate on it day and night. Lord, work that in your people, I pray. And now the Lord bless you with his word. The Lord make his face to shine upon you through his word. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you in his word and give you the peace that comes from the message of the word and faith in the word all week long. And all the people said, Amen.